Hi, Killjoys. It's Rachel here. And I just wanted to make a note that we did experience some technical difficulties this week on our awesome interview with Alicia Kennedy. There are a couple of times, I think just like two or three, that it cuts out a little bit. So I just want to apologize for that. I think uh, with context clues, you can figure out any of the couple words that, that get missed. But we will work on that for our next interview. Sometimes these Skype recordings can just get a little wonky. So Thanks for bearing with us, and we hope you enjoy the show. You're listening to Feminist Killjoys, Ph.D., an hour of feminism, pop culture, and politics, as discussed by two professional Killjoys. I'm Rachel. And I'm Melody. And today we'll be discussing vegan and vegetarian culture, identity, politics, and so much more with food writer Alicia Kennedy. But first, Melody, where can our listeners find us on the internet? You can follow us on all of the social media besides Snappy Snap. (laughs) So Instagram, we have an account, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, We even have a closed community group on Facebook. So just search for Feminist Killjoys Community dash WTF Power exclamation point. On Spotify, you can even find a mixtape that we have called the Feminist Killjoys PhD mixtape, and it is always updated. Thank you, Rachel, for that labor. Mm -hmm. If you have extra dollars and want to support feminist media makers such as ourselves, we have a Patreon account uh, and one dollar or more donation gets you stickers and access to our Killjoy newsletter aptly titled The Killjoy Review, sent your email box. Um, $5 or more gets you access to stickers and bonus content. If you would rather just leave us a one-time donation, which we also super, super appreciate, you can go to our website, fkjphd.com, and click on the birdie for that, and that'll get transferred to our PayPal account. You can talk to us directly by emailing us at fkj.phd at gmail.com. And if you'd rather go for the 90s way of communicating, you can call us at our U.S. number, which is 414-858-7818. How are you doing, Rachel? Oh, I'm okay. It's been a week. It has been a week. I, well, I posted on the social meds, which many of our people follow me on, so I'll mention it, that I found out I didn't get a grant that I was really excited about. I talked about writing the grant proposal on the show. So people, the the juror, you know, the, the verdict is in. It, I didn't get it, which was a major bummer. I felt really, really bummed. But then I decided to not be super depressed about it, which would have been very easy because I was really, really, really hoping that I was going to get it. But I didn't. And I decided to try to be positive anyway. And then, like, literally the next day, uh, just a bunch of other opportunities started rolling in. I still don't have like an official sense of what I'm going to be doing and how I'm going to be making money after we leave the Boston area um, at the end of July, but it's getting closer to to that being figured out, which feels good. But it, it just meant that my week involved unexpected travel. It involved unexpected phone calls. It involved um, just a lot of things. So it's been kind of a whirlwind. Uh, and I, it all kind of culminated yesterday. It was like, oh, it was a lot of good news that was happening, but I just sort of had like almost like a full blown kind of like panic attack in a coffee shop because I was like, I can't handle all of this stuff that suddenly just poured down, you know, from out of nowhere kind of thing. So anyway, um, it's been a week, but 
I'm good. It's Saturday, so as usual, I spent the morning at the yoga studio. Feel feel good about that. Um, it was good to be present uh, and use my body, so that was nice. Whew, what about you? Well, I'm in Portland hanging out with my best bud, who is six. I have a lot of best <laughs> buds, but uh, he's one of I've known him since he was a baby. I'm visiting, so his dad is a mutual friend of ours from grad school, but his dad has become a really, really close friend of mine. So I'm enjoying my time in Portland, hanging out with a six-year-old, which means lots of art projects and reading and just really fun stuff. So can't complain about that. And that's really like my life right now. I feel kind of disjointed from the world, but I feel like that's okay because the news seems to be pretty shitty. Yeah, it's, it is bleak. If we still had our segment, Who's Ruining the Dinner Table, I would feature ice when did as we usual i mean like we never canceled it we, we never canceled it. it yeah who's running the dinner party ice i think we like stopped because every week it was yeah it was like four to five so yeah anyway uh yeah no it's i don't mean to make light of how <sighs> what how ridiculously tragic and awful it is and i guess also my sort of killjoy moment is like ice and presidents have been deporting children since long before this week <laughs> like the so just just a reminder that this is not this is not new and we should be outraged about about deportation and borders um no matter whether it's a democrat or a republican under in office that's true but but the difference is that trump is trying to say that it's barack obama's fault or the democrats fault for the for what for the reason why like kids are being separated from their families or like in that detention center in Walmart for like those boys being age 10 to 17. Like he keeps blaming it. Like he, is it not true? Thank you for the killjoy moment. And I am with you on it, but I feel like it's even worse right now with Donald Trump because he's trying to say that like the, it's the Democrats fault that the existing law is why they're separating children from their parents at the border, which is a total lie. Whereas, like, Obama was just doing that shit without a lot of fanfare and didn't get as much critique because he's Barack Obama. Um, And then, like, what is going on at that Walmart with the young boys that are housed? Yeah. I mean, I just feel like that kind of stuff was not... It could have been happening during Barack Obama's tenure. I just feel like it's gone... It's been amped up. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. You're probably right. I just... um it's difficult for me when I see people getting upset who don't seem to be upset. Otherwise, anyway, I'm not, I trying, hear you. I'm not trying to shit no, on people, no, no. whatever, whatever gets you motivated. But I just like, I just hope people don't have selective sort of memory or responses when, when these things continue to happen, sort of, I don't know, no matter who's in charge. And anyway, there's, it's, it's also just like a very powerless feeling. Cause like, yeah. it's also like, who cares about what, how I feel about, liberal responses like it doesn't that doesn't matter to this cause what matters is that we need to figure out a way to you know stop this from happening and on our instagram i posted there's some fundraisers for uh folks who can be bailed out of of different you know of different holding areas that they're that they're being held so you know that's one way to get involved to try to give money to to bail funds find out your you know your sort of like local immigrant rights immigrant justice organization Mm -hmm. tap into the work that they need to be done that they're asking people to do so yeah i didn't mean to i didn't mean to make this about like my snooty approach to people's 
politics, but because um, that doesn't really matter. What what matters is that it's fucking terrible that it's happening, and <sighs> we just got to keep. I think my the rage is that it's like we could have collectively been addressing this like sooner since ICE came into formation, which hasn't been forever, which is another thing I think people forget. Like, ICE didn't always exist. It doesn't have to exist now. Like, it should be fucking abolished. Anything else you want to say about that? That was an unplanned rant. No, that's okay. I will just say in a very, it's a different situation, but I had the same feeling and I'm not, I am not comparing immigrants to raccoons. And also, in St. Paul, there was a raccoon that got stuck on a skyscraper and it made like international news. Yeah. People were like so worried about this raccoon making it like surviving. Yeah. And you know where I'm going to go with this one. I, I do. Was this, like, is, this is a perfect segue. <laughs> I'm like, um, okay. Like for all of you that eat meat, like can I just tell you like how how much trauma animals go through so you can eat a flipping burger? Yeah. And you're worried about this raccoon, who I am also worried about. Right. <laughs> it's sad to watch a raccoon scared on a skyscraper. But like, seriously, like if you if you really cared about animals, ugh, that always makes me so mad. I it's know, because like, it, it happens with every, that was the gorilla, that was the hippo, that was the, you know, there's always, yeah, very selective. Compassion. Right, like, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm going to assume that most of you are not vegetarians. Right, right. So. yeah. Speaking of vegetarianism, that was a beautiful segue. And also just real quick, the raccoon made it to the roof. I didn't watch because I didn't want to watch in case something bad happened until the end. And then when, when he got safely to the roof, I was I was pleased. It was actually quite, quite, exci- quite happy feeling. But speaking of veganism and vegetarianism, I am so excited to introduce our audience to our guest today, Alicia Kennedy. Alicia Kennedy is a Long Island-born, Brooklyn-based food and drink writer who's work focuses on the intersection of food and politics, vegan cuisine, and Puerto Rico. Recently, she's written for the New York Times, The Guardian, Taste, and Hazlitt. She hosts a podcast called Meatless, a series of conversations with chefs and writers about their relationships to vegetarianism and veganism. She's going to tell us a lot more about the podcast in the interview, but do yourself a favor, pause the show now, go on your iTunes app, and subscribe to Meatless right now, and then come back and listen to Alicia's interview. Melody, will you take us there? Okay, hi, Alicia. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So we want to start right away with sort of your journey uh, through veganism and vegetarianism. You've been both vegan and vegetarian. And so when what came first, what changed, just sort of talk about your relationship with those sort of food identities. Sure. I um, When I was a kid, I uh, had Moby CDs, and that was where I learned about veganism, mm-hmm. through the liner notes <laughs> of Moby CDs. Uh, I saw him when I was Aww. 13. It was very influential. But I grew up on Long Island in a very, like, normal family. And so to be vegetarian would have been very strange. And so it didn't, every time I tried to be vegetarian or, or try and transition to veganism, it just wouldn't work out. And I, you know, I'm a food writer now and I have always loved food. And it was just very difficult to combine those two things, not eating meat and eating well for some, in my mind, at least. And then when I was about 25, I started going to yoga a lot and started to just feel this kind of pull toward veganism and and toward not eating meat. And then um, for my 26th birthday, I just 
went cold turkey. It was like, I'm vegan now. And for five years, I was a strict vegan. And I, even during that time, ran a vegan bakery on Long Island, where I'm from, uh, for a year. And then I started being a food writer while I was still a strict vegan. And then my brother passed away in 2016. And this kind of threw around my understanding of the world and understanding of how food connects us to people and, and that sort of thing. And that that kind of drew me toward vegetarianism and, and seeing how that felt. So I'm still in that space of, of vegetarianism, but I do feel that I look at the world from a vegan perspective and I certainly write from a vegan perspective and I host my podcast from a vegan perspective. And I, I'm just trying to figure out kind of when I'll get back to it. I do think I will, but it's just a, a little detour in the journey right now. Mm-hmm. I just want to make a note because you recorded a beautiful reflection on exactly what you just mentioned, your your brother's passing. And so I, I listened to this. It was for um the, oh, I'm blanking. The, the Splendid Table. The Splendid Table, right. An, right. An amazing. So, so cool that you got to be on that. And right. yeah, you recorded this sort of beautiful reflection of, of grieving and how that changed your diet. And I actually, so this is just a side note, but I taught a podcasting course at Tufts University in the spring and a number of students wanted to make food related podcasts. And there was a student who was struggling with sort of how to combine storytelling and meaning and food. And I was like, I, you should listen to this. And I sent her oh, that wow. and she <laughs> like loved it and it totally helped her shape her podcast. So, oh, that's um, so good to hear. yeah, it was a super moving piece and we'll link it in our show notes and stuff uh, in our, in our newsletter. So yeah, just, just wanted to comment on that, that I did that I did hear that reflection yeah yes I would also just say I'm sorry about your brother (laughs) thank you thank you uh and also encourage people to listen to that segment I actually don't I'm just gonna be honest like splendid table is not my thing right (laughs) (laughs) if more people like you were on it then possibly right I just mean it's Uh, cool that it's like you know a big deal show and it was fun. No, that is huge (laughs) I mean to be on the splendid table is like amazing I think Francis Lamb is is doing a really amazing job kind of shifting it and people are complaining actually that he's doing too mm. much people stuff and not enough cooking stuff mm. um, but I think he's he's really changing it for the better to be a little more interesting that's awesome cool yeah that's great so along the lines of your vegan and vegetarian story so obviously like you've talked a lot about how food choice can be a political act um, right. on lists and just in your other writings like around Puerto Rico for example mm-hmm. do you see your food choices as being political Absolutely, yes. Uh, I, I mean, I always talk about my veganism or vegetarianism as being rooted in both in a kind of spiritual perspective, but also in a eco-feminist understanding of, of the world. And so I do think that at, it's a very simple choice to not eat meat and to say that this is a way of rejecting both patriarchal understandings of food and, and, and capitalist understandings of, of food and, and rejecting those ideas that were fed about what we should be eating. And and I, so, and when you go to the farmer's market and choose a smaller producer, I do think that these are political choices. I know that they can often be construed as, as bougie choices or, or not available to everyone kind of choices, but in an ideal system, we wouldn't be supporting corporate food entities. And so I do think that all these things are political in their way, even though they are very, very small and probably insignificant acts. Can you, as a follow-up question, 
define what ecofeminism is to you. That's not a uh, kind of feminism that we've talked a lot about on the show. So, right, it's a, an, a feminism that sees the destruction of the planet as part of the patriarchal capitalist uh, destruction of culture and society that these are all connected and that, that we yeah our our functions under patriarchy are similar to how we animals and the planet is is destroyed too yeah we i mean melody and i have talked we, we haven't done it actually we haven't done a solo episode on veganism at all but we've brought it up a lot and we sort of struggle between the sort of like this is the small individual like lifestyle politics act that isn't doing anything versus like this is actually very significant very important and you know sort of voting with your dollar and putting you know ethically consuming things even though there's no ethical consumption under capitalism that it still matters (laughs) and yeah so that that sort of finding that balance and something that works is I think or, you know, the days, some days you feel politically, it feels politically significant. Some days it doesn't, I think, in my brain. But yeah, I appreciate your expansion on that for sure. Uh, as a food writer, obviously food is the most important thing to me because it's my work and what I focus on. But um, and then, of course, on the podcast, I'm talking to mostly chefs and people who work in food. So for us, it's a little bit different, I think. It becomes less of an individual act, the, the way you're cooking or what you're cooking. And it becomes uh, more because you you have access to a, a community either by cooking for them or by writing for them. I think it becomes a little more important and significant. I would hope that's Ab- that's my hope. <laughs> Absolutely, that makes total yeah. sense. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I definitely think that's different from just like, yeah, what I individually eat for breakfast. That's that makes a lot of sense. And speaking of writing, I would love to just hear more sort of about your your experience freelance writing sp- specifically about veganism. I think on seems like maybe on the one hand that could be like, oh, you have your your niche and that was became really easy. Or it could seem like there's all these food magazines that would you maybe wouldn't fit into because you're only writing about vegan and vegetarian food. So can you just sort of talk more about what that's been like? Sure. I mean, I think I, I come from a privileged position in this because I did work at New York Magazine for six years. Mm, cool. And um, I was a copy editor there. I didn't really write anything. But I do, you know, I understood how the system works, I guess. Mm-hmm. So when I started to f- write about food, I had a couple of connections here and there, not many at all. But my first piece about food was about Lagusta's Luscious, which is a chocolate shop in New Paltz, New York. Um, I profiled her for a site called The Hairpin. And then I wrote some others. I wrote a personal essay for Munchies, the vice food vertical, about running my bakery and, and what that was like. And I wrote about plantains for them too, which wasn't split explicitly vegan, but was still vegan. And then I left New York Magazine and went to Food and Wine, which I kind of think about as some sort of like vegan infiltration that I did there. And one of the one of the, the first thing I ever wrote for foodandwine.com was called uh, Why 2016 is the Year to Surrender to Vegan Cheese. Um, <laughs> I didn't give it that headline, they did. And it was all about nut cheese and because there was a nut cheese shop that just opened in Brooklyn that year so, and there was a lot of good stuff coming out. Uh, this was, yeah, the beginning of 2016. And so I, yeah, from there I think I, I I kind of did find a niche and people come to me when they do want vegan things. I just wrote a piece for taste cooking about baking with coconut oil. And uh, I wrote a a kind of glossary of vegan egg replacements for them as well a couple of months ago. It's become both a niche, but I also, 
And also, I think just there is an openness to it. Um, I've also, you know, I've written restaurant criticism for the Village Voice for a couple of years, and I've focused explicitly both on vegan and vegetarian places, but also just on anywhere. And, you know, if, if there is a menu that includes meat, I'll just have a meat eater come with me and eat it and tell me what they think of it. Someone whose palate I trust. Mm. Uh, so, which isn't obviously an, uh, an ethical, that's <laughs> not something I want to tell vegans, but <laughs> that's kind of how it works, you know? And, um, but I always, you know, again, it's, it's kind of centered in that perspective. It's like, if I go to a place that's not explicitly vegan, but I give a lot of time, to vegans, I think that, that's you know that's that's important to me and that's is how I reflect my veganism even when it's not at the forefront of the piece yeah totally am I remembering correctly that I've seen in your Instagram stories like do you sometimes get maybe partly because you write about veganism you'll get sort of like how to get skinny sort of health you know centric kind of stuff (laughs) um yeah so can you speak to how you differentiate yourself from sort of the like being vegan is about, you know, this euphoric version of health where you're going to be skinny and this is what matters, you know, sort of how, how do you differ, how do you separate yourself from that world of vegan food writing? Uh, Well, I don't focus at all on wellness and I will never write the word healthy. These are just not things I do. uh, And I, I try to write about vegan food in a way that any omnivorous food critic or food writer writes about non-vegan food you know mm-hmm. um yeah they they think that th- these things will be interesting to me i guess because i do write about veganism but i delete well after screenshot and share and, and make fun of them yeah. <laughs> um, it's also it's like i want people to know that these are the things that are coming through you know that that when they read a story that maybe makes them feel bad or isn't uh, body positive that it's it it's probably coming from these kinds of terrible publicists who are sending things to people who are in vulnerable positions of I need to write something and I need to get it up now and Mm -hmm. and places that have these like bad editorial policies where they they don't mind trying to tell people how to get skinny or or how to or lie about how to get healthy that sort of thing so it it's just a twisted game the whole being a writer and dealing with PR and trying to find an ethical way of doing that, but also trying to just kind of filter through the garbage, which is most of it. It's mostly garbage. I I did just get a a PR release this morning, which was odd because it's Saturday, but about a vegan vegetarian mural in Austin being built, funded by cryptocurrency, which actually might be something I would like to look into because I don't really understand. (laughs) But it it seems like some sort of weird intersection of veganism and capitalism there. Right. Interesting. Yeah, and I hadn't, I don't think I've ever really explicitly thought about the ways in which, like, the sort of precarious labor of the freelance writer would be part of uh, this culture of sort of body shaming and fat phobia and uh, health as morality sort of thing. But that makes a lot of sense. Like, if you have a young writer who just, like, needs a byline and needs Mm -hmm. to meet a deadline, you know, it's really easy to say, like, five things to help you get your, you know, bikini body, whatever bullshit. Exactly. Um, Yeah, and... So that was so thank you for bringing attention to that, because I think that's I don't I certainly hadn't thought about that element of it. I just wanted to follow up on your cupcake vegan. Just kidding. I just wish that you had cupcakes. (laughs) I just had vegan cupcakes last night that were amazing. So I'm a little preoccupied in my brain with those. But your (laughs) vegan bakery. Can you just explain a little bit about that business? And then I just have a follow up question about 
vegan businesses in general? Oh, sure. Um, I just, I was working as a copy editor. I started baking a lot and I hated every vegan recipe that I was making uh, for cake or cookies because they all used earth balance and I thought, I just don't like it. I don't, I think of it. (gasps) (laughs) I really, (laughs) I really hate earth balance. And so I was trying to find a way of making, uh, using a fat that wasn't a little greasy or or that had strange flavors that I didn't enjoy. And so I I realized coconut oil could be that fat. And in order to use it, this is like, this is uh, 2011, 2012. So this isn't, like Miyoko hasn't made cultured coconut butter yet. So Mm -hmm. um, this was just me in my kitchen being like, oh, if I mix, if butter, butter is 80% fat and 20% milk solids, then that means if I combine 80% coconut oil with 20% coconut milk, then that Mm. would be the same. And it's vaguely the same. It works similarly. And it almost it almost tastes better because you can get you don't have that butter flavor. So you have just like a pure fat without flavor as long as you use refined coconut oil. Mm. Um, So yeah, you chill that and I would just use it as butter and uh, people were really into it. i I kind of just grew out of my yoga studio, basically. That's where the orders were coming from at first. And then I was at a wholesale, I did have wholesale accounts, and then I did farmer's markets. And yeah, it was a very exhausting, it was basically a hobby that got out of control. But it was a very, you know, enjoyable time in my life. <laughs> yeah, that sounds fun. And that's such a yeah. good tip. Or is there any place we can find those recipes? Did you ever publish any oh, of the yeah. recipes? Um, I did. Uh, Munchies actually has my recipe for chocolate chip cookies. Oh, rad. Right. So it seems like Issa was uh, inspired by you because now a lot of Issa's uh, recipes do that coconut oil thing, I've noticed. Yeah, well, you know, I think that's just the, the trend. Totally. Yeah. You st- I'm just saying you started the trend. <laughs> I, just to yeah. I, I would say Marisa Volante at um, Sweet Marisa's, who makes, she makes the macarons that are really cool and amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, w- I would credit her and Legusta more cool. for bringing coconut okay. Fair enough. (laughs) So the reason why I asked about your bakery, um, especially being in Portland right now, in restaurants, is that there I've been noticing for a long time now that vegan restaurants, especially in Portland, are signifying a turn towards gentrification of specific neighborhoods. So today I was at a place called Off the Griddle. Amazing food, but it stood out in the in the neighborhood. Like it, it was different. It was brand new. Uh, the clientele seemed to be coming in from another neighborhood. And that just seems to be a trend. Um, and there's nothing inherent about vegan or vegetarian restaurants that need to be gentrifying but they tend to be and so i'm just curious because you're in the industry and was once a bakery owner like how do you think about that kind of stuff and what do you see from your from your viewpoint in the village voice at the end of last year someone wrote about a bakery called brooklyn which opened in bushwick which is a vegan bakery and and the piece was by a non-vegan so it was very condescending in all the very like boring ways that people are condescending toward vegans like oh, this muffin tasted like nothing, blah, blah, blah. But it looked at what it was, what it meant for a vegan business to move into a largely Dominican and Puerto Rican neighborhood and where people, their cultural tie is so uh, strong toward meat. And it certainly 
is a clear starting point for gentrification when when that sort of thing happens. And and similarly in Bushwick, there's Pine Box Rock Shop, which is a vegan bar. But it's always kind of a manifestation of larger forces, of course. Um, I do think about this a lot more in terms of vegan like entitlement to food at any establishment like I just mm-hmm. saw someone tweet today like this place only the only brunch option for a vegan is a side salad or something and I'm like well why did you go there why <laughs> like leave and go somewhere else or something you know it's just it's a difficult it's a difficult topic of course gentrification is so complicated but I do think that there clearly there is a a perception of veganism as as white and and bougie and that means that if a business opens catering to vegans one must assume there is a a white bougie population either emerging or present and i think this is probably more a a problem of of veganism not being branded well Mm. i would hope that it just it doesn't it doesn't present itself as for everyone like this this place brooklyn whiskers for example you know everything's very expensive and that's because they're using ingredients that are not widely available or, or that sort of thing but at the same time it's like why aren't they offering something that is appealing to the neighborhood why mm. aren't they offering you know a, a two dollar breakfast that someone could have if if into this they would need to change their business model and i think in new york I feel like veganism is is so, people say the vegan, like New York's a great place to be vegan. I don't believe that at all. I don't think it's it's a place where you have like tons of options for fully vegan restaurants at all. Um, There's a a vegan restaurant in Bed-Stuy that opened in an old Chinese place called Toad Style, which I love, but it, it for sure is kind of a sign that the neighborhood is changing. But at the same time, they're trying a little bit more to be appealing to the neighborhood in terms of uh, price and offerings than this bakery appears to be. So it's just your balancing act that everyone has to do because where are you going to open a, where are you going to afford to open a business? And if you want it to be vegan, you have to just, you have to try to make it appealing. Oh, there's a place called Soul Sips that just opened in Bushwick that's owned by a young man who's been and that place is doing is trying really hard to actually be for the neighborhood and has sliding scale options and all that sort mm. of stuff. Yeah, it's sorry, it's a very complicated question. Certainly something that happens in New York, and I have seen it happen in New York. And it's more a question, I think, of one vegan percept the perception of veganism as not being affordable and not being for everyone. And it's also a question of whether these vegan business owners want to integrate themselves into the neighborhoods where they're opening businesses. Yeah, for sure. That, that, yeah, that's a really good point. And to back to something you said earlier about how the vegan restaurants often just signify. Bouginess, even if they aren't bougie, it's just this like assumption, this assumed signifier. And I've dealt with that with my writing and work with bicycling, that like bicycling and bicycle infrastructure does the same kind of thing that people just start assuming what it stands for, even if that wasn't the intention of it to begin with. But so lots of connectors there. Yeah. And I think sometimes when we, we, have to fight against this and because I feel like it's a way for the dominant culture to keep people away from either going vegan or riding a bike is to say no that's that's for those you know hippies and that's not for you and it's expensive it's not you know it's not 
the way to do things. Yeah. I just had this, I don't know why I haven't like thought about this more or talked about this more when these kinds of conversations come up, but so I went vegan back in 2003 and so, you know, it was long before I think what, you know, sort of the, the branding that it has today. And I'm just thinking about the only vegan restaurant in Cle- this was in Cleveland. The only vegan restaurant literally that was all vegan that we knew about was this African owned soul food restaurant. Mm. And so I'm just thinking about like how dramatically things have changed because it was literally like every staff member was not just African. I mean, not just African-American. It was like African, you know, they had immigrated from Africa, opened this restaurant, and it was, yeah, just like vegan soul food. So it's just been, yeah, such a dramatic shift because that was that was my sort of association. It was like, you know, gross soy milk from that one aisle of the grocery store that, like, had the box of soy milk. Um, Eden soy. Eden soy, <laughs> yep. Uh, and then this one restaurant, you know, and then I just had to sort of make everything else, you know, at home and eat at punk houses and whatever. Mel, you went vegan that, around that same time too. I was just going to say when I lived in Milwaukee, one of the one of the vegan restaurants we would drive we would always go to Chicago to get vegan food mm-hmm. and one of them was the Soul Food restaurant in Chicago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That also has a branch in Atlanta as well. So okay, like yeah. Yeah, same here that like soul food was one of the first entries that I got into vegetarianism. And that's all I mean, those soul food, the soul food place that I went to in Chicago was on uh, religion that is based in Jerusalem, like it was a religious thing. Yeah, Um, it's Israeli Israel. I don't know, I'm gonna say something incorrect. Um, So that was also really interesting to learn about. But yes, I concur that that was also based in which I would eat vegan, right uh, in Chicago. Yeah. Anyway, so there's that. White people, yeah. we have to take things. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, it seems like the healthification, kind of to go back to that, is what's created this strange perception. Whereas before it was like a very subculture kind of thing. And now when in its mainstreaming has become, yeah, just more about health and what your body looks like than than about anything else. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You had mentioned Puerto Rico before. You've written about Puerto Rico. Can you talk about your work uh, and your activist work with Puerto Rico, with the intersections of the hospitality industry, your your work with them, and like how it all intersects, like the political landscape going on there after Hurricane Maria? Just tell us some, tell us some stuff about that, your work with that. Sure. Um, my grandmother is from Puerto Rico. That's like my connection to it. I've just always been obsessed, you know, from the food to the the culture. It it has always been the a part of my ancestry that's been interesting to me. And so when I started to, well, when I when I started to be more politically interested in that and active, I realized, wow, Puerto Rico is a colony of the United States. People don't talk about that enough. I right. mean, it, I've I've been writing about the food culture in Puerto Rico for almost three years now. The first piece I wrote about that was about a a trans chef named Pax who was working out of a garage cooking with all local produce at this place called El Departamento de la Comida, which um, they, because the the often cited statistic is that Puerto Rico would import 80% of its food and only provide 20% for itself. And so they were flipping that statistic. They were mm-hmm. serving 80% 
Puerto Rican grown food and only using 20% imported, if that, um, goods. Hmm. Um, so I wrote about their work where they were cooking all vegetarian food in that space and in that context. And so that was clearly, you know, a, a a sort of uh, political vibe at that place. And it continues to be um, the person who ran that named uh, Tara Rodriguez uh, still is um, the effort to move Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico toward food sovereignty and um, recover the, the agriculture that was lost after Maria. But I, yeah, so I've always written about Puerto Rico even before Maria from the an anti-colonial perspective, even when I was just writing about rum or something like that, similar to veganism, where I think I try to just kind of trick people maybe in my <laughs> writing, or, or not trick people, but kind of be like, this, this is deeper than you might think it is, and, and hopefully that comes through. And yeah, re, uh, even before Obama signed 2016 the uh, PROMESA bill, which uh, instituted a financial control board over the, I don't think, it, outside of the kind of US gaze perspective, and to talk about like, this is actually what's happening in the food world here, like we can talk about it in its context, which is uh, as a colony and as under an economic crisis, but also as a city that is uh, has a, a food culture and, and it is thriving. And, and what does that look like? And what does that mean? So I've covered a, like a huge swath of things from like, these are the women who are the chefs and bartenders that are killing it in that city to, you know, um, Post Maria covering the Queer Kitchen Brigade, which is working out of New York and pickling produce donated by farmers and uh, shipping it off to Puerto Rico to feed people wow. there who had no fresh food. So it's been like a very, very mixed approach to writing about Puerto Rico. And, and it's been definitely like a, a work in progress to figure out how I do that ethically and how I do that without treading on anyone's toes, being that I do not live there. So but yeah, so I kind of try and take the anti-colonial perspective, even when I'm just, you know, covering a bar there. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, that's amazing. That's such important work. And I didn't, you know, know a lot about some some of the things you mentioned. So that's, you know, obviously, you're doing great education work in, in this writing. Really, all that stuff is super fascinating. And how did that obviously now I can see the connection between your family tree and the fundraising that you helped with in New York um, after Hurricane Maria hit. Could you say a little bit more about that work that you did, the fundraising? Um, we, um, so I, because of all my connections to chefs and bartenders on the island, after the hurricane, I was kind of put in a Facebook group with everyone from the industry who was trying to figure out what to do. Um, and I tweeted that I was in this group and I woke up the next day and Lin-Manuel Miranda, who wrote Hamilton, yep. had retweeted it. Um, no big deal. <laughs> yeah. And then all of a sudden, I a really cool space in Brooklyn with, where they teach uh, cooking classes uh, from from kind of an activist standpoint from a that, you know, cooking is empowerment. You need to know how to cook. And she offered the space and it, we had a week to put together the event. And I got in touch with friends at the green market and friends, people I anyone could get in touch with because we just had nothing and had to put together an event in a week. Uh, so we got tons of donated produce. My friend Maria, who has a restaurant called Gallo Negro, 
Pedro in San Juan was stranded in Miami after a wedding. So I flew her up with my JetBlue points to cook for us because we had no one else to cook. And yeah, so we put together a little menu based on the donations we got. We got tons of raffles donated from various various businesses like Rocket Chocolate and Lagusta's Luscious again, like just tons and tons of donations for that. And so we had 150, oh, uh, capacity of 150 people for that event. We sold tickets for $25. We sold out in three days because people were just so eager to help. And then through the raffles, the tips for the bartenders, like everything, we ended up raising over $10,000, which all went to uh, food service, helping food service workers on the island who had been out of work for that time uh, since the hurricane uh, because they were most of them were out of work from Hurricane Irma which had hit right before Hurricane Maria right. so yeah it went toward you know getting a couple of restaurants back on their feet and it went toward making sure that these people didn't leave the island because that's a huge concern that there will be literally no one to work uh, mm-hmm. anymore so yeah it I and it was something it's like I'd love to do more of that but that's the sort of thing that doesn't doesn't come along right the opportunity doesn't come along every day so I've done a couple of smaller um fundraisers since then usually for the queer kitchen brigade I produce a comedy show with my my boyfriend's a co-host of every month and so we don't it's a free show but we'll often ask for five dollar donations or whatever anyone can spare and give it to a charity so we've done a few of those for for Puerto Rico since then that's awesome yeah Yeah. that's that's really cool and yeah that's that little Lin-Manuel bump Oh, probably God, yeah. didn't hurt. <laughs> that's, that's great. That's amazing. Yeah. Cool. I want to shift gears because we need to talk more about your awesome new podcast. So we mentioned okay. that uh, Meatless is this new great show everybody should go subscribe to. So tell us more about it. You've had two have been released or are there three now out? Uh, two have been released so far. Okay, great. So tell us what are the goals of the podcast? Why did you think it was sort of important to add to the podcast world? And um, yeah, we'll start there. Sure. I think I, I mean, I hope that I have a unique perspective on food. Um, As someone who's been vegan, is vegetarian, like my perspective is very, is not always represented well in, in food media. And because I had this, my own personal journey away from veganism or, or whatever, um, and trying to understand what that was, I wanted to just kind of talk to other people who, who have made whether or not they eat meat an actual thing that they think about because there are many people who seemingly don't think about it at all so I just was like well maybe if I maybe this will help me maybe understand my own journey and I want I think it'll help other people too who who've maybe questioned why they eat one way or another and whether they you know could change that should change that or or you know just make make people feel less alone in their struggles either way regarding their diets. So the first episode I talked to Brooks Headley, who's the chef of at Superiority Burger, because his his cookbook had come out the day I released the the episode and he serves mostly vegan food, but it, it's a vegetarian technically. But it has two stars from the New York Times. Um, this is a second cookbook. Um, he just has a very unique perspective and comes to vegetarianism from a uh, background as a drummer in punk bands, but he also worked in fine dining for a long time. So his perspective is really unique, and I just wanted to to talk to him about about things. And it was interesting because, you know, his conclusion is sort of that 
offering cheap food is more important to him than being vegetarian. And I thought that was interesting and, and something that, that a lot of people think about often. Um, and then in episode two, I talked to, again, Lagusta from Lagusta's Luscious, who is um, a fabulous chocolatier and chef and just has a really unique perspective on ingredient sourcing, running a business as an anarchist, and, you know, how how to justify selling treats in a, in a world that is terrible. So, um, <laughs> so I'm trying, and the forthcoming episodes, in the next episode, I'm actually, it's going to be a conversation with a, a chef from a restaurant in San Juan called uh, Verde Mesa, and his name is Gabriel Hernandez. Um, he launched, opened his restaurant as a pescatarian vegetarian restaurant, but has begun serving meat. And so he has some interesting perspectives on on how what you have to serve in a in a place where survival is difficult. You know, mm-hmm. so that, those are the kinds of conversations I'm trying to have with people. Uh, after this one, we shift gears a bit to writers and uh, a less shameful. Leah Kurtz, a friend of mine who uh, wrote a thesis for her NYU Food Studies Masters on the intersection of queerness and veganism. My Lucas Zucker, who is the editorial director of Jari Magazine, which is a queer food journal. We talk about his history with uh, vegetarianism and writing vegetarian cookbooks. You know, as we were prepping this episode, I think Melody and I were both kind of struck with the fact that as two vegans, we really haven't had that sort of like pivotal, like this is, you know, this is our go vegan. So we, I guess we've kind of shared that, but just not as like a full episode devoted to this is animal, you know, this is factory farming. This is how horrible it is. And we both, and Melody, I'm speaking for you. So please correct me if I'm jump in, if I'm off, but I just feel like that I could point people to like 10 different podcast episodes that give the give those sort of bullet points like this is what it's doing to the environment this is how fucking terrible it is to animals and if you give a shit about any living creature you don't want to like see people you know see these beings being tortured etc etc like those those things I hope a lot of people know by now and there's always room for people to learn that but I really I really appreciate this sort of like human interest perspective that yeah. That is more complicated. It's not just like, it's not just so simple. It's like, this was the moment I saw the pig being, you know, slaughtered. I'm sorry. I'm, I don't know if that will be triggering to some vegans because they can be kind of an intense bunch. We, I guess I'm part of that. But it's like, no, here's this complex thing. Like, I'm also thinking more about capitalism these days. So that's going to possibly change, like, my relationship to my food. Or I'm thinking about grief and my human relationships. And that might change my relationship to, to this diet that, you know, I thought was going to be that, you know, that I'd never, never leave or whatever. So I just, I really appreciate that aspect of it. Yeah. I mean, I would just say, like, as a question about your podcast in general, mm-hmm. like, what is the end? What's the end goal? Like, so Rachel and I have been talking about kind of what our end goal was when we first started the podcast and how maybe it's shifting a little bit but in your head like what is what is the end goal for you creating this podcast I would just like to tell a new story about food I mean you know about how how our relationship to what we eat is reflected is reflective of our personal histories our cultural identities our you know, political affiliations. As Rachel said, I think human interest is probably the best word for it, is that I don't think that we've seen enough people talking about vegetarianism or veganism from a very human perspective that does not make prescriptions for how anyone should live. Um, some Something that is, it doesn't, I'm not particularly interested in talking 
to omnivores or convincing them of anything, but I think that works in my favor probably is that I just want to present a story of, uh, or various stories of how people have figured out their own relationships to these issues and see, see how that makes other people feel. You know, I don't, I don't want to tell anyone what to do or make anyone feel bad about their own choices, but I do want to present the idea that, that these things are more complicated than we often give them space for. Yeah. And I definitely think that there is power in storytelling. There's Mm -hmm. been lots of discussions about how just telling stories from people's personal point of view will shift people's opinions more than the like, here's a dead pig. You still like eating it now? (laughs) You know, like just people are inspired by other people's stories. And so- I think that is, even though that is not your strategy um, to like convince the omnivores, I think that, like you said, it could have some really great ripple effects by taking that approach. Totally. I I think in this conversation, I found out that my whole strategy for everything is to to be sneaky. (laughs) 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 Well, or or a nicer way to say that maybe is to you know to tell stories, which is which is what you are and what you do, which is really cool. So yeah. We're getting close-ish to time, so I want to make sure we want you to plug all the different places people can find you, and then we'd like to invite you to stick around for our closing segment. But first, uh, where can people find you? And also, if there's any other sort of upcoming projects that you're excited about that you want to plug, this is the time to tell our listeners. Uh, Well, I wish that I had upcoming projects I could tell you about, but there's just stories that are in the works. So if you follow me on Twitter at Alicia Kennedy, uh, you'll always see my too many of my thoughts and uh, also my my links to my work. And then on Instagram, I'm Alicia Lapirata, um, L-A-P-I-R-A-T-A, which just means the female pirate in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, and my website is just alicia-kennedy.com, which has links to almost everything I've done in the past. Right. Plus the, the, the podcast is on there too. You can stream it. Cool. Awesome. Great. So... Our final segment of the show is reading, watching, and listening. So we just talk about what we are reading, watching, and listening to this week. Would you stick around and join us? Sure. Awesome. Mel, do you want to start? Reading, watching, and listening <laughs> with Alicia, Melody, and Rachel. Perfect. Uh, sure. <laughs> I just, anytime, I can sing that. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Uh, I'm reading a chapter book called The First Rule of Punk. It's for young kids, but it's written by a Latinx community college librarian. And it's about a young, I think girl or a young child who uses zines to like express herself. So it's like the best kids book ever. And so I'm reading that with my buddy that I'm visiting and we're making zines. So that's amazing. Adorable. Today I was like, I should just watch Mr. Rogers every day and like it'll like be my calm space so that's what i'm watching and i'm listening to a lot of punk music because my buddy loves punk music and so one band that we listen to is taco cat and they have a song called i hate the weekends because from their point of view that's when all the tourists come into seattle and like ruin all of their community spaces so amazing shout out to taco cat for <laughs> yeah awesome song. cool i'll jump in I have nothing new to share in terms of what I'm reading, but I did finish what the book I talked about last week, which is How We Get Free by Kianga Yamada Taylor, and it was very, very good. I finished it on a plane ride that I was on this week, and it was fabulous. I highly recommend it. Uh, watching Almost Done with Wild Wild Country, which 
uh, Melody, please do watch it because I really do want to do a bonus up about our reaction to it or maybe a regular episode. Mm. My friends, just as a uh, follow up, my friends that I'm visiting like also were like, have you seen that documentary? Yeah, it's bananas. I get it. I get it. Have you seen it, Alicia? I haven't yet. I want to. Yeah. Yeah. uh, It's it is something. Anyway, so in addition to that, uh, which I'm not finished with, um, I did see the the RBG movie, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg movie yesterday, a friend of mine. I saw it yesterday too. Oh, did you really? Um, you saw it random. at the same time. I, you know, I, I probably, it wasn't high on my list. I mean, she's, let me say this. I don't want to, I don't want to be disrespectful. She's really incredible and did really, really, my partner and I sort of had a conversation about my use of the word radical. Like for her time, she did do radical things. Her politics are not like radically left, um, but she did do radical things. And so therefore, you know, I don't want to be dismissive of her as sort of like a liberal sort of centrist, which is usually not as exciting to me politically. But she's pretty badass. So I'm glad I saw the movie. But there were moments in it that I was just sort of cringing, like their celebration of the military and like just, I don't know, all the sort of mainstream shit that happens in in mainstream mainstream spaces so but it was i mean i don't know what do you think mel i felt like there was an early point in the documentary where they were talking about how the civil rights movement kind of came before the women's rights movement and there was that mm. there was that moment where they could have made an inner like they could have asked her an intersectional question yes but from like the framing of the film it was like we had the civil rights for the black people, yes. and then we had the women's rights for the women. But what <laughs> what it really was about was white women. Exactly. I agree. And I felt, yeah, there was a total missed opportunity for intersectionality, which is kind of inexcusable in 2018, I think. Yes. And that's what me and my, the friend that I went to go see it with is all, is a woman lawyer. So mm. she had lots to say about it. Yeah. But the other, what I, what my summary of it was like, this is a really nice celebratory documentary about rbg it'll be great to show generations in the future of like what her work what she did not like a, it's not critical in any way you know they avoided all the hard questions it was yeah. a celebratory documentary and totally. for that it was awesome it did but don't job. go into it thinking that you're going to get like a you know a well-rounded critical look into her life as a right. judge right totally exactly yeah yeah agreed alicia did you see it yet or did we just i did not you? no well, uh, <laughs> there you go <laughs> sorry that's okay <laughs> It's you yeah, didn't spoil it's, anything. Though. No, that's I true. Mean, like it's her life. I, There's I not feel a like Alicia would have the same thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> I would, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and finally, I'm listening to the new Snail Mail album. It's very good, Alicia. Uh, yes, I am reading. This kind of gives a clue about what I'm working on. But I'm I'm reading a book about a murder in my hometown called Hunting Season: Immigration and Murder in an All American Town, mm-hmm. which is. Very strange. It's very strange to read about where you're from, from an outsider's perspective, especially when it's in the context of this, like, terrible, terrible event that happened. Mm. Um, But I'm reading that for research right now. As for watching, I haven't gone to the... I recently saw a movie. uh, It was that Rachel Weisz one. Oh, yeah, I want to see that. The lesbian one? Yes, it was very good. It was very good. Very moving. But I also recently watched on Netflix The Letdown, which is an Australian kind of comedy about how having a baby is miserable. Um, and that was that was a fun fun watch while I wasn't feeling very well. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I've been really into Australian shows on Netflix recently. I'll say that. Um, but as for listening, I'm always listening to Not A Surf. Like, so I don't have a very interesting answer that for that. I will recommend that I'm 
uh, El Ultimo Vecino, which is a uh, Spanish kind of synth band, uh, is probably my favorite thing that's sort of new. Cool. Will you send me like a link to that? Because my dumb English speaking, I probably couldn't spell that if I re-listened. So yeah. Yes. Yeah, that'd be helpful. And I was also just going to say in relation to the not a surf comment, and also you mentioned Moby, and like you've talked about Annie DeFranco <laughs> in your Instagram stories. Like, I just really, really appreciate your like commitment to the 90s. And I feel like it is element, you're like, it's uh, obvious in your style, which I totally appreciate. So I think, and I think Melody would agree, uh, we're big fans <laughs> of the 90s. Ni- oh, big fans of, of the 90s. Yes. <laughs> So super solid. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much. It was so fun to have you on. I'm so glad I got to talk to you because I've just been excited to be IG friends late in the past few months. And this was great. And and, uh, thank you so much. Thank you guys so much. the biggest fish in your pond you have to be as attractive as possible make sure to keep your hair spotlessly clean wash it at least every two weeks